Thank you very much, Patricia, for that introduction. And it's a great honor and pleasure to be here. Uh, this is my first um, visit to, to Oxford, and I, I was shown around the, the grounds near the Trinity College um, this morning by Professor Akonde. And very impressive um, take you have here. Uh, not too long ago, I got my own doctorate from another old university in Amsterdam, established, I believe, 1630-something. And going from the train station on the day of my uh, defense to the very old hall where the ceremony was to happen, uh, it was a little consternating to learn that he had to go through the famous Amsterdam red light district to get to that place. <laughs> well, I'll spare you the details. <laughs> anyway, thank you very much for, for having me here. Um, the impact, good or bad, of any profession on society is, is possibly gauged by the propensity of the general population to drench that profession and its practitioners in irreverent jokes. Uh, it is a treatment that law and lawyers have surely received in a very generous measure. Before I continue, may I ask for perhaps a show of hands, are there any LLB students in here? LLB okay. Well, there's nothing wrong with being an LLB student. <laughs> I was there about, uh, you know, not very many years ago, probably 35. While some of these jokes uh, may be amusing even to, to lawyers, it must take uh, a very highly evolved sense of humour for any LLB student, as I was, as I said many years ago, to find much hilarity in the thought that William Shakespeare, had it been up to him, would have all of us LLB students exterminated soon after we have been licensed to practice law. Now, it is not necessary to republish here the odious words, and I must assume we all know those words that Shakespeare incited into the mouth of Dick the Butcher, and who shouts them in public during the rabble-rousing speech that the rebel Jack Cade delivers at Blackheath in part two of the play King Henry VI. It is enough to say that the uh, displeased interest of Fatou Ben Souda, the ICC prosecutor, will be provoked where those words to be uttered today against a national ethnic racial or religious group as such, in our own age of the Genocide Convention, even in jest, and to plead that you were joking may prove an unreliable defense to a charge of direct and public incitement to commit genocide. Now, but some of those jokes may have much potential for intelligent satire Take, for instance, the one that links law 
links Lord to the devil in a broader narrative of the original sin and its sundry consequences. I'll tell you that story in a little while, but before we continue, perhaps I should, for the Catholics amongst us, and I am one, um, I read an article not too long ago by a Catholic priest attached to the Vatican, to the Holy See, to the press office, I think it's Father Rosica, Thomas Rosica, who wrote an article entitled, Why is the Pope so obsessed with the devil? And I'm summarizing some of the point he makes. Quote here, he says, Pope Francis seems, seems, uh, Pope Francis seems to be obsessed with the devil. His tweets and homilies are now legion about the devil, Satan, the accuser, the evil one, the father of flies, the ancient serpent, the tempter, the seducer, and so on and so on, or just plain demon. Francis refers to the devil continually. He does not believe him to be a myth, but a real person, the most insidious enemy of the church. Several Roman Catholic priests have been heard to mummer that the Pope may have gone a bit overboard with the devil and hell. Francis seem, Francis's seeming preoccupation with the devil is not a theological or eschatological question as much as it is a call to arms in the here and now, an invitation to immediate action, offering very concrete steps to combat, to do combat with the devil and the reign of evil in the world today. There is no point trying to out outsmart the devil, there's some of those practical tips the Pope gives. There is no point trying to outsmart the devil with your own intellectual prowess. You cannot win. I assume even for Oxford graduates, PhDs. The devil is intelligent. He knows more, much more theology than all the theologians put together. With a great tempter, one cannot dialogue. The only weapon is to respond with the word of God. Now, generally speaking, some of those appear in quotes and some are not in quotes. But that seems a convenient strategy, of course. So faced with a rather common temptation, all that any man is to do is to tell the devil, well, um, sorry, uh, Mr. Devil, all I have to tell you is that thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. That is the word of God. If you don't like it, take it off with God. That word of God with some uh, we've seen that in movies, some Catholic priests. But the next story about the devil and um, makes our law, the law we have, in human hands an even more hopeless weapon against the devil. Now you take that story. Satan, the story goes, was God's greatest mistake. Being initially instated as an archangel, Satan made himself perfectly objectionable in every possible way. It came as no surprise then that 
he was finally banished from heaven. Halfway down in his descent, he paused. A thought had occurred to him, and he went back to God. There is one favour I should like to ask, just one. And what would that be? came the reply with much irritation. Well, began Satan, clearing his throat. Man, I understand, is about to be created. He will need laws. God rolled his eyes and said, yes, I do intend to create man and I suppose you also know very well that you will be his appointed arch adversary, charged with the, from the very moment of his creation with hatred of his soul. And no, continued God, I shall not grant you the favor of the privilege of making his laws. What I ask, say the devil calmly, is that he, be permitted to make them himself. And here we are, the laws the humans make. It is a joke, of course, and a typically reverent one, originally written by the reverent and irrepressible Ambrose Bierce, an American uh, comic writer of his time. But it is a winsome satire that adequately captures the original flaw of law. And despite what any extremist theorists of natural law may claim, and none is really known to have gone that far in any claim, God is not the giver of the law that we practice in the courtroom, lest it be perfect, omniscient. You have no doubt noticed the absence of gender neutrality in the language of that joke, but there may be some sense in that. Of course, some of the laws that man has made has been so thoroughly diabolical that we often struggled to believe that they were not directly made by Satan himself in a fit of sublime madness. Uh, whether you name be it the Jim Crow laws, the uh, Nuremberg laws, the apartheid laws, and so on and so forth. And that, I presume, is not a sin that even the most ardent feminists would care to share in the name of equality of the sexes. The point is quite simply this. The law is, in the end, a human enterprise, and afflicted as such, with the fallibility and liability of its human essence. But from the protestations often deployed by some of those whose intellectual preference is great against some of the decisions of ICC judges in their own interpretation of the Rome Statute, the impression is generally left that the Rome Statute has managed the feet of what one commentator once cynically described in relevant context as the legal bluebird, 
the perfect statute that would foresee, classify, and judicially regulate in advance every possible case. Such a hope for the Rome statute necessarily runs against the current of the widely held view that no statute, however comprehensive, can foresee every situation it will regulate, and no provision, however clearly drafted, will be completely free from the interpretation of phenomenology. There is a plethora of eminent views in that regard. For present purposes, I should, uh, it should suffice to sample just a few in this discussion. And we may begin with Thomas Jefferson. He was trained in the classics and law in a commentary about the possibility of producing different effects in the meaning of a poem by the mayor accentuation of different words in the same passage, he observed as follows, that there may be a subordination amongst accents in English prosody, a modulation in their tone of which it is impossible to give a precise idea in writing. This is intimately connected with the sense and continuing, he further observed, no two persons will accent the same passage alike. Perhaps two real adepts who should utter the same passage with infinite perfection, yet by throwing the energy into different words might produce very different effects. Of course, things can always be taken a little too far. Energy may be thrown a little too hard, but still we may wonder. Mm -hmm. In 1947, uh, Jerome Frank wrote a piece published in the Columbia Law Review entitled, quote, Words and Music, Some Remarks on Statutory Interpretation. In that piece, John Franks uh, tells the story of a certain Miss Goodlooks, uh, a chorus girl who had been drafted in an emergency to play Ophelia in a certain production of Hamlet. In the player scene, according to that particular production, Hamlet asks Ophelia, are you chaste, my lady? According to the script, Ophelia is supposed to respond, chaste, my lord. But Miss Goodlook's own rendition was, chaste, my lord. <laughs> when chided, she remarked, well, that was my interpretation of the part. This is, again, all the story um, according to Judge Franks. Now, of course, in the social context of 1601, when Shakespeare wrote Hamlet, uh, down through the Victorian era, and even in Jerome Franks' own 1947, 
uh, it may have been correct to chide Miss Goodlooks for that interpretation. But if Hamlet was written to have continuing relevance in a society of the 21st century in which the idea of chastity no longer holds the value it once held, and in which, quite frankly, the question as to the chastity of any woman is not the business of any man, you begin to wonder whether Miss Goodlooks was wrong in that interpretation. It's an open question. It is about how you can throw accents in different words of identical structure read by two different people and get different results. It is true that Jefferson, that I discussed earlier, was commenting on the important role that accents play in the understanding of English poetry. It is also true that legislation is not to be readily taken for poetry, but such caveats may not readily escape the fallacy of the red herring that they themselves aim to impugn. This is so because, as with poems, the average legislative provision seldom, seldom comes with um, accents on the words that the drafters intended or the legislators agreed to give the greater stress in the given provision. Hence, as with poems, the discernment of the words in need of the greater stress is necessarily a function of legislative interpretation that judges do. Indeed, Jefferson's observation about the susceptibility of words to interpretation and prosody is effectively similar to the equivalent phenomenon identified by the most eminent jurists in relation to legislative interpretation. Leonard Hand, for example, observed that, quote, the meaning of a sentence may be more than that of the separate words, as melody is more than the notes, and no degree of particularity can ever obviate recourse to the setting in which all appear and which all collectively create. Felix Frankfurter, for his part, presented what he called the bottom problem, quote-unquote, of statutory interpretation in the following way, quote, What is it? that is below the surface of the words and yet fairly a part of them. Words in statutes are not like they're not unlike words in a foreign language, in that they too have associations, echoes and overtones. Judges retain judges must retain the associations hear the echoes and capture the overtones. The bottom problem, according to Frankfurter, proceeds from the premise that, quote, the difficulty is that the legislative ideas which laws embody are both explicit and imminent. One of Frankfurter's more famous predecessors in office, Oliver Wendell Holmes, Jr., had observed long before that, quote, words are 
flexible, unquote, and those are very famous words in legislative interpretation. According to Holmes, quote, the general purpose, again, the general purpose, is a more important idea to the meaning than any rule which grammar or formal logic may lay down, unquote. And he had warned that judges are, quote, apt to err by sticking too closely to the words of a law where those words import a policy that goes beyond them, unquote. This was a continuation of an earlier thought that Holmes had expressed as follows. Quote again, A word is not a crystal, transparent and unchanged. It is the skin of a living thought and may vary greatly in colour and content according to the circumstances and the time in which it is used. Unquote. Here we think about Ms. Goodlook's interpretation. Now, many eminent British jurists have made similar observations, notably Lord Dunning and Lord Reid, and more. And my omission to um, quote them here or cite their words here is purely to be blamed on time constraint. And Patricia, who tells me I must finish in 40 minutes. <laughs> but those interested may um, read my copious and approving um, recall of their dicta in a recent judgment that was rendered in the case of um, Prosecutor versus Ruto and Sang. But according to the um, Bluebird view, uh, that idea of the perfect statute, the Rome statute has rather been set in stone in the following ways. Uh, he should admit of no judicial improvement whatsoever in the process of his interpretation. It must be taken precisely as it appears. Its words are the sum of what the statute and the ICC are all about. Any idea not directly reflected in the statute's words must be denied admission into the statute's interpretative case law. Anything apparently stated in its express language, must be applied literally, regardless of any mischief that may ensue. Judges must not be seen reflecting through interpretation policy choices not readily apparent to all in the words of the particular provision being interpreted. Of course, these may be different ways of saying essentially the same thing, but there you have it. As observed earlier, this sort of attitude is amply evident in some of the reactions registered by critics of certain recent uh, decisions of the courts that go beyond the literal language of the actual provisions in the Rome Statute. We heard earlier from learned hand Felix Frankfurter Oliver Wendell Holmes, and I also alluded to uh, British judges like um, Lord Reid and Lord Denning. Their observations jointly and severally are encapsulated adequately in Article 31 sub 1 of the Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties. That 
provision codifies the foremost general rule of international law on treaty interpretation, I shall presently quote the text of Article 31 sub 1 of VCLT, and I, uh, you may keep that quote in mind when it comes, because I shall be alluding to it later on in the discussion. Now, Article 31 sub 1 of the VCLT provides as follows, quote, a treaty shall be interpreted in good faith in accordance with the ordinary meaning to be given to the terms of the treaty in their context and in the light of its object and purpose. In the interpretation of the Rome Statute, there is ample room for the view that its objects and purposes make it more than an ordinary statute. The statute is a constitutive instrument. It created an institution intended as permanent and to guide the conduct of successive generations of humanity across regions, nationalities, and cultures. As such, it is, at the barest minimum, a document analogous in nature to written constitutions in the domestic sphere, where legal documents of that kind are generally regarded as organic instruments. Many years ago, Viscount Sankey, Lord Chancellor, at the Privy Council, described the Canadian Constitution in memorable terms. He characterised it as, quote, a living tree capable of growth and expansion within its natural limits, unquote. According to him, quote, there are statutes and statutes and the strict construction deemed proper in the case, for example, of a penal or taxing statute or one passed to regulate the affairs of an English parish would be often subversive of, the, of Parliament's intent if applied to an act passed to ensure the peace, order and good government of Canada. Unquote. Statutes of the last ilk are ill-served when their provisions are, quote, cut down by a narrow and technical construction, unquote. They are better served, according to Lord Sankey, by, quote, a large and liberal interpretation, unquote. Uh, those are classic words in Canadian constitutional law. Lord Sankey's pronouncements were made in the context of a landmark judgment of the Privy Council in 1929 in a case colloquially known as the Parsons case. The question for determination was whether women were eligible for appointment to Canada's Senate as, quote, persons qualified, unquote, so to be appointed. Prior to that judgment, the conventional view of the Constitutional of Canada on the matter was that it did not permit women to be appointed to the Senate. However, in interpreting the Canadian Constitution as a living tree capable of growth 
an expansion within its natural limits. Lord Sankey ultimately concluded that the, quote, the exclusion of women from all public offices was a relic of days more barbarous than ours, unquote. In that context, he noted that often at the time of drafting laws, the necessity of the times may result in legislative reflection of mores and practices that become patently unnecessary in later years. As such, the constitutive legal text must be considered as a living document whose interpretation must be adapted to the evolving times and social perspectives and circumstances in order to keep it continually relevant. In the United States, Justice Holmes had similarly described the American Constitution as a living document. In Missouri and Holland, he had famously expressed the point in the following way, quote, when we are dealing with words that are also a constituent act, like the Constitution of the United States, we must realize that they have called into life a being, the development of which could not have been foreseen completely by the most gifted of its begetters. It was enough for them to realize or hope that they had created an organism. Now stop there with a quote. The treatment of a normative legal text as an organic instrument has not been confined to the domestic arena. In international sphere, the European Convention of Human Rights, for instance, has been similarly regarded by the judges of the, of the court. There is no reason to view the Rome Statute in a lesser light. That is the more so because the Rome Statute was adopted, quote, for the sake of present and future generations, unquote, with a view to, quote, and unquote, ends expressed as such in the document. Those ends, as declared in the statute's preamble, will... Um, with both the articulate recognition I take that again those ends begin as declared in the status preamble with both the articulate recognition quote that all peoples are united by common bonds their cultures pieced together in a shared heritage, unquote. And, as well, as evident in the preamble, is the attendant concern that, quote, this delicate mosaic may be shattered at any time. Now, particularly implicated in that perceived threat is the fact that the century in which the Rome Statute was adopted, quote, millions of children, women, 
and men had been victims of unimaginable atrocities that deeply shock the conscience of humanity. Unquote. So those are the mischief to be kept in mind at all times in interpreting the Rome Statute anytime. Surely, the Rome Statute is a penal statute, and I must address that point, aspects of which will, to the required degree, call for strict interpretation. Even Lord Sankey had in, indeed acknowledged that much for penal and taxing statutes. But there will be times, whether or not more often than not, when the Rome Statute is better served, even as a penal statute, by a large and liberal interpretation, particularly in light of the ends that it is intended to serve, including, amongst other things, contributing to, quote, the peace, security, and well-being of the world. Words that echo peace, order, and good governance of Canada, as Lord Sankey had noted. And in the Rome Statute, the peace, security, and well being of the world as an end. It's an end no less significant than the end that any national constitution may serve to ensure, as I noted earlier, the peace, order, and government of any country. If the Rome Statute is to be treated as it must be, as a living tree capable of growth, an expansion within its natural limits, it is obvious that the ICC judiciary are the veritable gardeners in the orchard in which the tree must grow and expand to full bloom. But the job of any gardener is seldom easy, for the judicial gardener in the orchard of justice, one difficulty frequently encountered is that of being pulled in opposite directions along the axis of the dispute concerning the legitimacy of judicial lawmaking. Indeed, no discourse on interpretation of laws is ever complete without considering the particular difficulty presented by the concern about separation of powers between those who make law and those who must interpret the law so made. On international plane, however, it suffices for present purposes to say that there is a very clear recognition of the necessity or inevitability of permitting the judge reasonable scope within which she may function as a lawmaker in the limited sense that judicial interpretation can generate principles or rules of law 
not so apparent on the face of the statute or treaty being construed. In this regard, it may be a positive to bring learned hand back in. He had observed that in interpreting a statute, a judge ought not to be conceived of merely as, quote, a passive interpreter, unquote. It is important, he wrote, always to keep in mind the judge's, quote, own proper representative character as a complementary organ of the social will, unquote. In Leonard Hans's further view, it is only by recognizing and respecting the judge's functions in that proper representative character that she is enabled in her competence to perform the very duties of which she is tasked to perform and what is comprised in those duties concluded that at hand include quote the articulation and final incidence of the successive efforts towards justice unquote in the course of which the judge quote must feel the circulation of the communal blood. And I end the quote. The recognition that the judge can, through judicial interpretation, legitimately generate principles or rules of law in her own proper representative character as a complementary organ of the social will as Leonard Hand put it, is clearly evident in the statutes of the two leading permanent world courts. As part of the outlines of the sources of international law, and we all recall the text, and mark that, sources of international law. Article 38, sub 1D, of the ICJ statute clearly identifies judicial decisions as a subsidiary means of, uh, for, for the determination of rules of law. Similarly, in the Rome Statute, Article 21 sub 2 provides that the ICC, quote, may apply principles and rules of law as interpreted in its previous decisions, unquote. Now, it would be evidently improper for the gardeners in the orchard to overindulge in their talents, to over-fertilize the Rome Statute's pasture and induce growth and expansion of the living tree in unnatural ways. And we pause here to record that Lord Sankey had contemplated only a natural growth and expansion of the living tree. Nor should it be right to embark upon a course of development that merely, merely 
gratifies the exercise, just for the sake of it. A proper and natural growth of the living tree will generally be gradual and incremental and strictly necessary. But there may be the exceptional occasion when the Rome Statute may have to experience a growth spurt induced by the necessity of justice in a given case. This will result from the need to resolve a problem requiring an answer beyond what even a composite construction of the Rome Statute may legitimately supply. This may go well beyond the interpretive imperatives of what ought to be a proper cause when a judge encounters what Frankfurter described as legislation with, quote, purposeful ambiguity, unquote, or legislation couched in, quote, generality for future unfolding. By the way, Jerome Frank had similarly spoken about the phenomenon of wise and deliberate use of vague and flexible standards in legislation. A legitimate growth part of the living tree in those exceptional circumstances may be occasioned because the problem in need of judicial solution may indeed have resulted from what Frankfurter further described as a legislature's occasional strategy of, quote, solving problems by shelving them temporarily. Or it may be that the vexing problem is one which the legislator had in all good faith, as often happens, simply not contemplated at all at the time of drafting the law. Yet, the problem of the occasion is one that requires a solution as a matter of urgent and exacting demands of justice in the case at hand. When confronted with such an urgent and exacting problem of justice, the solution of which may lie beyond the legitimate boundaries of a given statute, it must be a necessary part of the judicial function to explore other sources of applicable law besides the unhelpful piece of legislation or treaty. Here once more, we must keep in mind the judge's own proper representative character as a complementary organ for the social will, as Leonard Hand had put it. The point here is that at the nearer end of the spectrum of what the judge may legitimately do, when the statute offers no reasonable solution, the first recourse is to explore other applicable sources of law. And in the international justice system, there is ample scope for the proposition that the judge ought to look for possible solutions offered by other sources of international law beyond the four corners of the unhelpful treaty that primarily controls the question. Now, aside from 
The sources of international law indicated in Article 31 sub 1 of the ICJ statute, now widely acknowledged in its own right as a matter of customary international law, which also, by the way, uh, should apply at the ICC. It is also the case that similar sources of international law have, in a consistent way, been indicated in Article 21 sub 1 of the Rome Statute. And for purposes of the ICC, those sources are as follows. In the first place, the court's legal text, statute, the rules, the elements of crimes. In the second place, and as appropriate, general international law, including applicable treaties and the principles of, and rules of international law. In the third place, general principles of law derived from national laws of the legal systems of the world if they are not inconsistent with the Rome Statute and general international law. And finally, according to Article 21 sub 2, as we saw earlier, the court may also apply its own previous jurisprudence. So those are some in a nutshell, the map of the sources of international law that may assist in interpreting particular provisions of the Rome Statute. Now, this discussion will be incomplete, of course, without some thoughts on the proper value of travaux préparatoires or preparatory works in the job of interpreting the Rome Statute. I begin again with Frankfurter. He had said, quote, that the troublesome phase of construction is the determination of the extent to which extraneous documentation and external circumstances may be allowed to infiltrate the text on the theory that they were part of it, written in ink, discernible to the judicial eye. This ordinarily, I, I stop the quote there, continue. This ordinarily troublesome phase of construction of treaties in general presents a special concern in the treatment of the Rome Statute as a living tree capable of growth and expansion within its natural limits. When one pauses to consider the scope of influence that travaux is allowed to have in the interpretation of the statute, the question is do we have a shackle in travaux? In some recent decisions of the ICC, a cautious attitude was signaled against the idea of any expectation that travaux should always, always be consulted as a routine exercise in the interpretation of the Rome Statute. The concern is that such routine consultation, even out of abundance of caution, may harden by sheer aggression into a general and necessary rule of practice of treaty interpretation, contrary to the evident intendment of the Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties 
as will be seen from the uh, proceedings of the 1968 Vienna Conference on the Law of Treaties, which I, sh which I shall recall a little later. In those ICC decisions that signaled caution, it was held that resort to travel needs to remain purely as a discretionary, non-essential facility permitted in the limited circumstances indicated in Article 32 of the VCLT in contradistinction with the essential aids to the general rule of interpretation indicated in Article 31 of that treaty. That is to say, travaux, as indicated in Article 32, are to remain, quote, supplementary means of treaty interpretation, unquote, which is permissible as an optional measure and not a requirement if the meaning of the given provision is ambiguous or obscure or may lead to manifestly absurd or unreasonable result. It is important to stress here that what Article 32 is saying, I submit, is that there is no obligation to consult travel even when a provision is troubled by those shortcomings of ambiguity, obscurity, manifest absurdity, unreasonable result. Even so, the resort to trouble is only permissive and not obligatory. But the essence of the permission does not readily create an obvious fault in a decision maker that sees no need to engage in consulting travel where that decision maker feels well able to interpret the provisions of the treaty reasonably and sensibly in their context and in light of the treaty's objects and purpose. This thinking appears consistent with three notable observations to be found in Brownlee's uh, Principles of International Law that all of you know now to be a classic. First, it is observed there that out of the various approaches to interpretation of treaties, only the textual approach is recognized in the VCLT. Article 31 emphasizes the intention of the parties as expressed in the text, quote, as the best guide to their, inten uh, to their common intention, unquote. Second, it is observed in Brownlee's at another place that, quote, preparatory work is an aid to be employed with care since its use may detract from the textual approach. Moreover, particularly in the case of multilateral treaties, the records of conference proceedings, treaty drafts, etc., may be confused or inconclusive, unquote. And third, again, still on Brownlee's, it is observed, quote, textual approach in practice often leaves the decision maker with a choice of possible meanings, and in exercising that choice, it is impossible to keep considerations of policy out of account. Many issues of interpretation are by no means narrow 
technical inquiries, unquote. Now, this is where I bring in what I had highlighted earlier. Uh, to recall the circumstances in which international law codified the subordinate and optional treatment that travel now enjoy in a manner that is not on par with the guidance to be derived from the actual text of the treaty being interpreted as the best guide to the common intention of the parties, as it is put in Brownlee's. Those circumstances involve the pointed debate between the UK and the US before the committee of the whole conference on the law of treaties in 1968. During that debate, Professor Myers McDougall of Yale University, leading the debate on behalf of the United States delegation, vigorously argued for travel to be given exactly the same standing as the, as, as the required techniques of general principles of international law laid down in what is now Article 31 of the VCLT. His declared aim was to include travel among an undifferentiated list of aids to treaty interpretation. Sir Ian Sinclair, on behalf of the UK delegation, opposed the proposal with equal vigour. He insisted that Tavo must remain only, quote, a supplementary means of treaty interpretation, unquote, as they are now described in Article 32 of the VCLT. On behalf of the UK, he argued that recourse to Tavo as a guide to interpretation should always be undertaken with caution and is almost invariably, quote, confusing, unequal, and partial, unquote. Confusing because it commonly consists of the summary records of statements made during the process of negotiation and early statements on the positions of delegations might express the intention of that delegation at that stage, but bear no relation to the ultimate text of the treaty. Unequal because not all delegations would have spoken on any particular issue. And partial because it excludes the informal meetings between heads of delegations at which final compromises were reached and which were often most significant Uh, most significant feature of negotiation. Now, if travaux were to be placed on equal footing with the text of treaty, of the treaty itself, Sinclair continued, there will be no end to debate at international conferences. In the end, McDougall's proposal was defeated by a very large margin in the ensuing vote taken at the Vienna conference. It was rejected by a vote of 66 to 8, with 8 abstentions, 10 abstentions rather.
it was in those circumstances that Article 31 emerged as the general rule of treaty interpretation, with Article 32 remaining the supplementary rule, as Sinclair had insisted, in the permissive recourse to travaux that it allows. The point there becomes that in resort to travel, we must keep in mind that the treatment we see in Article 31 versus Article 32 of the VCLT was not an accidental treatment. It was done on purpose. It resulted from a vigorous debate. And I'll leave it at that for now. Thank you. Thank you very much for this very extraordinary and even poetic uh, presentation. We have about 20 to 15 minutes for questions now. So I'll open the floor to questions. If you have any questions, please just raise your hand and I'll uh, take the question. Yes, Tamita. So uh, when I was working at the ICC for a while, I had the impression that um, 